Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Welcome back, Adapters. In this very special episode, America Adapts takes a journey to the CBA 11 conference in Kampala, Uganda. Let's get this episode started. First off, some background. Community-Based Adaptation to Climate Change, or CBA, focuses on empowering communities to use their own knowledge and skills to take action on climate change. This year's 11th International Conference on Community-Based Adaptation, CBA 11, focused on harnessing natural resources and ecosystems for adaptation. The conference provided an opportunity to review the latest developments in CBA practice with nearly 300 participants from over 50 countries from around the world. My episode guests will go into much greater detail on what is CBA. Now, my goal with this episode is to get my listeners more acquainted with what adaptation efforts are occurring around the world. This podcast episode was generously sponsored by a private conservation organization interested in getting the word out on community and ecosystem-based adaptation. I plan to do more of these on-location podcasts, and if you are interested in potentially sponsoring America Adapts Media to highlight the work you are doing in adaptation, please reach out on the website at americadapts.org. Before we get started, I just want to provide some context to the episode. Normally, I speak to one guest, but in this episode, I talked to multiple attendees at this conference. We talked in the hallways, we talked in the hotel gardens, we talked in conference rooms, anywhere I could pull someone aside to share their story. In addition to these conversations, I was invited last minute to talk on a panel on adaptation training and education. On this panel were people from Uganda, Denmark, England, with attendees from all over the world. It was a humbling and enlightening experience to share my insight on these topics and to hear what other panelists are involved in. Okay, I strongly encourage you to stick around until the very end of this episode. I have a treat in store for you. A traditional Ugandan music troupe joined us one evening and performed a dazzling traditional dance with some really amazing music. I captured some of this, and after you get inspired by these many voices of adaptation, stick around and enjoy equally inspirational and rousing Ugandan music. This was an eye-opening opportunity to cover CBA 11. There were many lessons I took from my conversations, and I hope these messages resonate for you. Many of my listeners tell me that when they listen to this podcast, it's like they are in the same room enjoying the conversation. I hope in just a little way you felt like you were with me in Uganda meeting all these amazing people. Okay, time to get this journey started. I am with the conference organizer. Hannah Reed from the International Institute for Environment and Development. Okay, first off, I'm going to use our conversation for my listeners to kind of frame why I'm even here, the CBA 11. What is that? CBA 11 is the 11th International Conference on Community-Based Adaptation. So it's the 11th in the series, and the idea is to bring people together who have an interest in local-level issues in the context of climate change, how to help those who are most vulnerable, how to help those who are suffering most, and how to get their messages heard by the people that need to hear them, the people that do the planning, the people that provide the money, the people that arrange the projects which are meant to benefit them. Who's attending this meeting? 
Traditionally, it's a strong NGO contingent. So we have a lot of people from Oxfam, Care, World Vision, Plan, the big international NGOs. This year is exciting because we've got a strong contingent of government people coming. Government people from Uganda, and they're hosting the conference, but also government people from Malawi and other countries. And this is exciting for me, Doug, because... We're moving beyond the single project level. What we're doing is we're working more with governments. We're influencing governments. We're hearing about the challenges that governments have with rolling out their own programming on climate change. And we're getting better at integrating the community-based approaches into their ways of doing things. If we don't talk with governments, we can never influence things at scale. We're just operating at a very grassroots project level, which we want to do less of. We want to operate at scale now. Okay, a lot of conferences have themes. I think yours has a theme. What is it and why did you choose it? So the theme for this conference is ecosystems and natural resources. What we're finding is that people in poor countries are heavily reliant on natural resources for their lives and for their livelihoods. So they will, they will collect their own food. A lot of them will earn a living from agriculture or forest products or fishing. 90% of people in poor countries depend on natural resources for their living and their, and their, and their income. And climate change is having a big impact on those resources. It's changing the ability for them to grow crops. It's making it hard for them to predict when fish will be available for catching. It's really affecting, affecting them and their welfare. So a lot of, a lot of uh, communities which are heavily dependent on these natural resources are being affected by climate change. And we need to work better with them, learning from them about how to manage natural resources better with a view to supporting them. So that's why we chose this as a theme. It's incredibly important for the world's poorest countries. Okay, so who are the major supporters of this effort? Um, I think traditionally the NGOs have, have led work on community-based adaptation. Some of the first community-based adaptation projects, for example, were led by CARE in Bangladesh. Um, and they have really um, pioneered this approach, community-based adaptation, local-level support, local-level solutions, and how to support those. But what we're finding now, like I said, is that we need to work more with governments to operate at scale. The key challenge is bringing together those NGOs with governments. So governments have very high-level, top-down top planning processes. Community-based adaptation is a very bottom-up, community-led process. Somehow we have to find a, ma a way to meet in the middle. So whilst NGOs have been driving this process, it's increasingly important to work with governments who need to take up the reins on that and both mainstream it and also just um, support the existing activities and work better with NGOs so they can learn how to do it. You, you mentioned this earlier, but who should be here that isn't? There are several people who should be here that aren't. The private sector is a big gap. People... Um, are very expectant for money on adaptation, money from the big climate change funds under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. I'm suspicious that these funds are not going to materialize to the extent that people hope, which means that we have to find money from other sources. Those sources are national government budgets, and like I said, we're very pleased to have a strong government focus here, a strong government emphasis and support. But what we're missing is private sector. We need to find ways to show that the private sector should invest in adaptation and bring them to the table. And at the moment, we're not doing that well enough.
I also always wish that there were more people from the communities themselves here. We have a handful, but it's maybe less than 20. There's a lot of people who work with communities, but not enough community representatives here themselves to, to voice their concerns, their challenges, their solutions. We need to hear that. We mustn't forget that they're the ones who are the most vulnerable. Another gap is people from Latin America and West Africa. We struggle with language issues. We don't translate the conference. We've tried translation in the past. It doesn't work. Things die. But that means that we end up with very limited participation from predominantly French or Spanish-speaking countries, which is a challenge because they have a lot to share. My bias is obviously my, my, most of my listeners are from the United States, and so would, what would you say the role the United States has in CBA, if any? Oh, good question. I think the United States, unfortunately, has just pulled out of the Paris Agreement, and that's a tragedy for us all. I think they were very important in driving climate change thinking at the national and international level, and we're not going to see such leadership from them anymore, which, which is sad. But I think what is exciting is we're seeing a lot of action in the United States at the, at the count state level and at city level. And I think people realizing that maybe at, at, the, at the central government level there's not so much support now, so they're, they're taking things forward, and that's exciting. What I would encourage them to do, I think, is to look beyond their own borders a little bit more. Climate change is something that is really affecting the world's poorest people. Um, it's changing their lives. It's changing their livelihoods in enormous ways. People in Bangladesh and Vietnam are going to struggle with floods and droughts, you know, to an extent that most Americans would not even be able to imagine. So I think what I would like to see is those who are taking up the reins on leadership within America, um, I would like to see them looking beyond their borders a little more to try and understand what's happening in some of these poorer countries, what the impacts are of their fossil fuel intensive lifestyles, and try and engage a little bit more with people in those poorer countries. And that will help them understand better what needs to be done to help these people. Great message. And as I'm discovering talking to folks, maybe a situation with a hurricane, but in the United States, dealing with climate change is not a life or death issue as it is for a lot of people attending this event here. And so it's been an eye opener in a lot of ways. So last question, what next? Where's the next conference? What's the next plan for this? That's also a good question, and it's something we're looking at. We've been doing this uh, 11, well, 13 years now, but this is the 11th conference, and it's time to reevaluate why we're doing this and who we're trying to target. The questions that we were looking at 12 years ago when we started were about communities and how to support them, how to help them, and how to get their voices heard. I think there are different questions now that we need to answer. We know how to do good local adaptation. You speak to anybody of the, of the 300 people in this room about how to do adaptation, they will give you a good example. We know how to do it. What we're not very good at is funding it, supporting it, mainstreaming it in government processes. So I think we need to look again at the conference series and see how in future we can start addressing these bigger questions. And we'll be having planning meetings about reframing the conference series and to, to make it fit for purpose, to to tackle some of these big emerging questions about operating at scale and reaching millions of people rather than thousands of people. It's a good question. It's one we're asking, but it's one I don't have an answer for yet, Doug. Okay, well, thank you, and congratulations on this event. I'm sure once it gets started, it's sort of a big relief, but thanks for all that you do. Thanks, Doug. It's very good to talk with you. 
Before we get started with my next guest, I need to provide some quick context. So when I arrived at the Kampala airport at 4 a.m. on my shuttle ride to the hotel, which was an hour away, I met two conference attendees. Dina Roca and Dorothy Tembo, two delightful women from Malawi. We jumped right into a riveting conversation on adaptation in Malawi when I realized I should be recording this. So I brought out my microphone and hit record just as we dug into a conversation about national adaptation planning in Malawi. I wanted to provide that background in case you were wondering about the abruptness of this conversation and the wind blowing in the background. I just didn't want to miss this conversation. Okay, here they are. Are they using language, like when they say the National Resilience Plan, are they using language like it's climate change, or does climate change even come up? It is. It's all in relation to climate change. The National Resilience Program is more like a a response to uh, climate change adaptation issues. So it's more of uh, how do we avoid giving aid in terms of humanitarian assistance because it's just too expensive. It's very expensive and it's eroding all the money that is supposed to go for development assistance. So now, if you look at National Resilience Program, look at the package that is being designed in that it can actually bring people out of poverty. Yeah, but also I think they're the same, they're the same interventions that we've been implementing. But yes. then looking at how climate change has brought in the, the, the variability and the difficulty to deal with the same interventions. In the Resilience Program, they've tried to design them in a way that will be responding to climate change effects. For instance, I think it's the same agriculture that we've been doing, the soil and water conservation. But in this plan, they've tried as much as possible so that the interventions that are in there should try to, to I think, to, uh, to align itself with the effects of climate change. So it's, it's, it's a program that will bring in coordination across the all players that are implementing uh, climate change adaptation and mitigation programs. And actually this one, the resilience program is looking at uh, food security. They are saying that breaking the cycle of food insecurity. So all interventions are trying to address that because that's the main worry in the country that once people go hungry with the effects of climate change, the whole economy drops because then the government has to start dealing with that as well. Okay, so we have issues of like educating the public about this broader issue of climate change, even though you might have government agencies actually working on the issue. So you have donors, you have government agencies who are talking about these things, but do you feel like the person on the ground, are, are when they are dealing with drought, are they thinking climate change, and is that the language you're using with them, or is it just not relevant? It is. Even if you, even if you go on the radio, you find that there are programs talking about climate change. It's real and it's affecting most of our communities. And people know. Yeah. The communities know that actually times have changed. Even you can ask a grandmother in the village who tell you that the rains were starting on 1st October, now they can even start in January. They actually know that all the shifts, they know what is happening, you know, with the indigenous knowledge they have, without actually using the scientific knowledge we use. They know that there's a change, and then there's the need for a shift in everything that they are doing. Also, what's, I guess, probably really different in the United States, a lot of the talk around climate change has to do with carbon emissions and how do we lower our carbon emissions and adaptation and dealing with it is less so. And that's why, you know, I, I do the podcast, but, you know, in a country like Malawi, you guys contribute almost nothing to the carbon, of you know. Course, but it's, yeah. And so, yeah, that probably doesn't come up when you're talking with folks, right? 
Yes, we contribute almost nothing, but we are in a need, of course, because of, I think, the size of the country and because of what we do. When you come to think of us, the small programs that we have, for example, the books of program, yeah. we, are, I mean, we are doing something. Yeah, we are doing we something, but when you look at the, our size, I think we are emitting more compared to the... Um, compared to our size of the country. Because other countries, I think they are, because of their size and because of what they are doing, you find that, the, um, for example, you talk about those that are big industries. Yeah. So you're like, okay, they are, they are emitting more. But when you look at their size, you're like, okay, this is maybe fine. Well, so, you, well, you're saying Malawi, maybe for its size, even though it has a small footprint, has a bigger size than it should be. So what is, what's the biggest contributor in Malawi? Sorry? Like, what's the most, the biggest carbon contributor in Malawi? It's agriculture. Agriculture. Yeah, it's, it's agriculture. But we can, we can check those. I think we have some values in terms of the, uh, the statistics, in terms of the sectors and how much they're contributing to the mission. So are you happy with the National Resilience Plan in Malawi right now? Or is it just a work in progress? Or? It's, it's working work in progress, pro not yet finalized. Yes, but yeah, it, it has oh. issues that donors have picked and they yeah. Yeah, had discussions with government uh, and particularly looking at issues of coordination, especially at the district level. So those are key issues that donors want to see uh, the, this, yeah, in, improvement in that. So it's work in basically progress. it's the yeah. same things we've been doing, but we just want to see things different so that we don't, like you were saying, I think we've been putting so much money into this climate change and climate change. So you have a whole mix of donors. Do you feel like there's an emphasis for them on, okay, improve your agriculture? And then some donors are like, well, maintain the environment and protect wildlife along with the people. I mean, is there any particular theme in Malawi that donors, or is it just kind of what's the emphasis for what the donors want to do? I think it's, 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 it's in everything. Both the one side, they want us to improve agriculture, but then also looking at the environment and natural resources, we also need to try as much as possible to conserve and manage. So we are looking at both, uh, both, both conservation, but also food security. Okay, I should have done this at the beginning, but could you give me your names again and where you work, just so I could have it recorded? <laughs> I'm Fina Rocha. I work for Irish Aid in Malawi. Awesome. Dorothy Temba, I work with Center for Environmental Policy and Advocacy. Hey, Adapters, and I'm with Anita Van Breda with the World Wildlife Fund. Hey, Anita, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Great. So what's your role at the World Wildlife Fund? My title is Senior Director of Environment and Disaster Management. That is a bit of an unusual title at the World Wildlife Fund. Give me the story behind that. It's an interesting story, Doug. It all started in 2005, and it all started with fish. I was working on marine conservation for WWF, and I was working with our colleagues in Indonesia. And when the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami happened, my colleagues and I were quite interested in how would a big disaster like that impact local people's livelihoods, and how would fisheries and aquaculture livelihoods be rebuilt in the aftermath of that disaster. 
And when we started to look into it, we realized that many of the humanitarian agencies rushing in to help were very well-intentioned but didn't have a lot of experience with fisheries and aquaculture. And when we saw the practices that they thought they would support in the countries impacted by the tsunami, we realized that they were outdated practices and we wanted to try to raise awareness around practices that would help communities do fisheries and aquaculture for the long term and not just the short term. So that led to a conversation with groups like the American Red Cross and others about how the environment and natural resource management is really a key component in disaster response and recovery. So some sort of key decision had to be made at WWF, or was it you kind of pushing internally, looking at this opportunity? You guys made a conscious decision to kind of do this new model. How did that happen? Well, The new model came to us because the disaster happened. We weren't looking for that. No one knew it was going to happen, of course. But once we realized the scale and the scope of the disaster and the number of years that it would be required to do that rebuilding, we realized that that's just, in some ways, it's another form of development. And we in WWF and other conservation groups have been working hard to influence the direction of development to make it as environmentally responsible as possible with some mixed success. So doing this in a humanitarian context after a disaster is yet another different way of doing development, but the environmental issues are still there. And so there's still an opportunity to improve the outcome of those significant investments so that people are better off as a result of thinking about how they can include the environment in their plans and their development. And the development and the humanitarian work is better off because it's more environmentally responsible. Okay, so I want to dig a a bit more in this approach at WWF, but I'm just curious, you've had 12 years now from Thailand, and are you tracking that? What's the situation with the, the work you originally started? It's very difficult to go back and monitor, and this is one of the limitations of this work and of humanitarian work in general. And I give the humanitarian community a lot of credit for being open and honest about their own limitations. And we, I think, in the conservation community can also learn from that process in terms of what is the impact of our work and do we have the ability to go back after five years or ten years and see how our interventions took shape on the ground and in the field. And unfortunately, that's often a limitation because we're often working with project funding that's four or five years in duration, if we're lucky. So you're a bit of a globe hopper in this position. You're going all over the world, but you're seeing these disasters. And I guess one in particular I, I would like you to maybe ex- talk a bit more about is something. Was it Columbia where there was a big mudslide event? Could you talk about that? Yeah, I was there a few weeks ago. There was uh, late March, early April. There were significant floods, mudslides, landslides in an area called Makoa in Colombia. WWF has an office in Colombia. And they invited me to come down and share my thoughts and experiences around disaster response and recovery. So I spent about a week there working with the WWF team and their local partners, looking at the impact of the disaster and working with them to think creatively about what type of environmentally responsible response is appropriate in that situation and how will that help help the local people not only respond from this disaster, but be face less risk for future events. 
Okay, so you have a disaster, and you were called in to offer your insight to what to do next. I mean, you have offices all over the world. Do people sort of recognize your program at WWF? It's like, okay, we need to call Anita. There's been a disaster. Is it that uniform at WWF? It's growing uh, because disasters are growing in scale and scope. So my program is a modest one, and we're part of the climate change adaptation and resilience team. Um, my team is small. We do this with two full-time people in D.C., one time, one part-time person in Sri Lanka, and then the WWF offices around the world. We try to interact with them you know, as needed. And we're also working to try to build capacity of WWF and local partners on this issue so that they're better prepared for a future event. So we're hoping to grow the program because the demand is increasing. You sort of answered it, but I'm thinking you have these disaster events and then you go in and you talk about recovery, but I'm assuming a big part of your work is even in areas that might be prone to disasters, are you working with people to say, okay, this is what you need to do? I mean, it's not just reacting, is it? No, it's not just reacting. We, for example, a number of years ago, we did a study internally in WWF to look at the priority places where we're working around the globe. We looked at six natural hazards to understand those priority places, what hazards are they facing. And it actually paints a pretty grim picture in terms of the number of hazards that our offices face around the world. So we are trying to work at the same time that we're helping response and recovery. We're also trying to work on the front end to raise awareness within the conservation community about disasters, how they impact conservation, and what we as environmental professionals can offer to reduce risk before an event and then be partner after an event. What must be challenging, too, is that you go to these events, I mean, just afterwards, and World Wildlife Fund, it's about conservation of wildlife, and I'm sure you're sensitive to it, but maybe you could explain more, like, you know, people are thinking water, food, shelter. And so you're walking to these situations and you're talking about the next level of like, what are we going to do for restoration and environmental outcomes? And it, you, there must be a very subtle approach to that. Yeah, and it's different from place to place. And when I started this work in 2005, I believe me, I got a lot of blank stares when I showed up at certain offices uh, with a Panda logo on my business card. Didn't make sense. But we also recognize that, well, first of all, I'll say that as WWF, we're not a humanitarian agency. Um, we do not get involved with search and rescue, with emergency, life-saving, food and water. Of course, that has to come first. We also help support that in a way, because our own offices and our own staff and their families have been impacted by disasters. So internally, we help relief work for our, for our colleagues and our, and our offices around the world. But we've also recognized that soon thereafter, sometimes within 24 hours, 48 hours, when that emergency life-saving work is going on, there's other professionals who are starting to plan the assessment process how are they going to assess the impact of this disaster and then make their recovery plans? So even in those earliest days, I feel like environmental professionals can be at the table, can help with resources and knowledge of the local area, where risk is, where um, places are, where people can go that will be safe. So I feel like we have something to contribute. But as environmentalists, we have to think differently and act differently and bring our environmental expertise to the table in a slightly different way than we would normally do in a conservation program. Okay, so I'm still trying to visualize 
what are the environmental outcomes that you're trying to support through WWF when you're working with these communities? And I think you've developed a, a toolkit. Is that partly you're using this toolkit, and these are the steps to get you what? Is it restoration of habitat? What are some of the things that you're literally doing? Right. So there's some standard practices that happen after a big event. Shelter has to be reconstructed. Water and sanitation systems have to be put back or redeveloped. People have to go back to work. They have to revitalize their livelihoods. We've wrapped up those technical issues into our green recovery and reconstruction toolkit and training program, which is admittedly a mouthful. We call it GERT for short, G-R-R-T. So that takes non-environmental professional through all the work that they need to do to work with the community to rebuild. And we can integrate environmental issues into each one of those particular sectors. So I'll give you an example. In Nepal, after the 2014 floods, we were asked to come in and help with this green recovery approach. So we worked with the local office, with local partners, municipalities, community groups on if you're going to build shelter and you need to get building materials, think of an environmentally responsible way to do that. That was so appreciated. They said to us, we would like environmentally responsible building materials and we would like you to show us how to know what they are and where to find them, which was a real good challenge for us to get that specific request. So that we, we went back to our teams and our offices and we worked with local Nepal colleagues to really find in Nepal, what are the environmentally responsible materials and what trade-offs do you have to make when you're selecting timber or sand or gravel or stones so that people can make an informed decision? I see WDF. F at being at the head of these efforts, but I imagine you, you said you, there's two staff and you must just have to rely on partners and that's probably your goal. And can you maybe share some of the partners you're working with? Well, when we started this program, we worked together with the American Red Cross for five years in four countries. So there we had WWF people sitting inside the American Red Cross office in these various countries. And then the American Red Cross in turn partners with their local Red Cross, Red Crescent uh, movement partners in country. So we had the WWF people in the Red Cross office. They sat next to the Red Cross people. They got to know them. They got to learn how each other views the world, what language they use, not just local language, but technical language. And they went together out into the field and they looked at challenges and together came up with solutions. So that gave us an opportunity to really learn and understand how a humanitarian person thinks and acts and how we can take our environmental management work, modify it and adapt it so that kind of person can use it. And that's where we've had the best success, where we can get people really together so that they have the time and the opportunity to learn how to work together. We can't do that in every situation. So we're trying as hard as we can to build capacity of various institutions and actors before an event takes place. So, for example, in the local D.C. area, we do what's called skills building institutes at American University with their graduate students. So if they're studying development or they're studying water management, they can spend a weekend learning how to use this green recovery toolkit. And hopefully they'll take that with them to their professional careers. So it might seem like a good fit to you, but maybe you could explain why are you in the adaptation program at WWF? Well, there's some similarities between disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation. And so that was kind of a natural fit. I mean, 
we have found that most communities on the ground, most individuals, they don't separate the two. What's climate change adaptation? What's disaster risk reduction? For them, they're just trying to get through their lives and they face a certain amount of risk and multiple hazards. And so we in our professional worlds, we tend to put ourselves in these different sectors and these different baskets of expertise. But really on the ground, that's not necessarily the case. So working with my climate change adaptation colleagues, we can look at where there's some commonalities and where there's some differences and how can we leverage each other's expertise in order to improve outcomes on the ground. So I'm thinking of an organization like FEMA, well, a government entity like FEMA, and they're doing disaster management. I know you're not really working in the U.S. very much, maybe, but is there the U.S. model, are they doing things similar to what you're doing? Do they actually look at environmental outcomes in the way that you're trying to do with this program at WWF? That's a good question, Doug, and I don't really have a good answer for you. Because we're an international organization, we don't work as much domestically, although that's changing now. I run into FEMA colleagues at conferences and seminars, and so we talk and we learn from each other. But I myself haven't had the chance to work in the U.S. on this issue. Every country obviously has different legislation and policy and drivers of change. And so I think that's happening in the U.S., but it's a different kind of context. Well, I guess I bring it up because of being America DAPS and a lot of American listeners and, you know, more I hear about your program. It's very innovative and using... And I don't want to say using, but you have these disasters, and here's some here's an opportunity to get some environmental outcomes. Let's try to do this right the next time. And so I would hope, if you're listening out there, FEMA, that maybe there's some things to learn at WWF. Yes, and I have uh, former staff who came to me, came to our program as an intern, is now working at FEMA, and I think she is, you know, raising these issues. And we have case, some case studies for some of our programs that have come from the U.S. where communities have decided to rebuild in a different way. So I think there's things happening, but I think, Doug, one of the challenges with this work and why I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast, I feel like there's a lot going on all around the world, but we don't necessarily know about it. It's hard to find the under the so-called, um, you know, under the radar community or situation. The big disasters get a big splash and a lot of media of attention for a short period of time, but the smaller, regular, everyday kind of hazards and events, they don't get that media attention. And so we don't always know what's happening there. So the more that we can develop stories, find examples and share them amongst and between us, I think that's a key to really advancing disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation, because we don't really know how to do that. We have to learn, and we have to learn on a daily basis, in my view. And that's hard to do. And so having different mechanisms and platforms like more and more podcasting happening now, that's really helpful. I like where you're going with that. We could have a much longer episode just talking about the strategic planning with what you're doing. But I'm just curious, you're going to these different locations. You're you're sharing this expertise. But I wonder, do you personally, and as part of the program, get a chance to sort of step back and saying, all right, what is going to happen five years from now, ten years from now? And you and I'm, what I'm getting at too is like looking at some of the climate models. It's going to be, oh my goodness, twenty five years from now, we're going to see a forty percent increase in what I'm doing. Do you, do you get a chance to sort of step back and do you work with scientists who are giving you information and like you're going to be a lot busier? Do do you do that? Yeah, we do to the extent that we can. And part of 
being part of this adaptation and resilience team at WWF, which has been so rewarding for me. When I came to it, it was about the environment and disaster risk reduction. And in many ways, disaster risk reduction is about looking backwards, uh, looking at what happened in the past in order to think about what's going to happen in the future. With adaptation, climate change adaptation, it's the opposite, right? So this is what keeps things interesting for me, too, is to see how we can pull those two worlds together and and learn from each other. And yes, I mean, we hear it every day in the media, right, about heat waves that are happening, floods that are happening, uh, sea level rise, places that are sinking. Sometimes it's overwhelming to think about all the changes that are happening and are we as, as a human species ready for that or thinking enough about that. In my view, no, and and that's why I really love working with students and with all the interns that we bring into my program because they're the future. And if I can help them understand what this work is and how they can do it, no matter who they work for, what professional sector they end up in, they can take that mindset with them and hopefully you know spread it to others as well. And I really want to focus more time on that because yes, we need good science. We need good science about hazards and climate, that's true, and we can find out where to access that and how to bring that to our work and and figure out the best way to use it. But it always comes down to the people, right? Even though I'm an environmentalist and I'm working in this disaster context, it's not about the technical issues around the environment and natural resource management. It's about changing hearts and minds and really connecting with people emotionally for that click to happen that, yeah, we can do something different here. Okay, a couple more questions. So I look at what you're doing, and I think WWF probably benefits in, and I'm not even sure what happens internally, but the notion of that that you're working on humanitarian issues. And so often conservation groups are considered just tone deaf to what's happening with people and communities, and here you have a specific program that's really thinking about all right, this is this is a community, there's been a humanitarian issue, and we want to talk about environmental outcomes, but is WWF's, do they have, I mean, it must challenge them to kind of market what you do. Is that, a, do you have programs to talk about it? We do. We need more support always and help with communications. It is a difficult thing to talk about and, and to illustrate, but it's growing in scale and scope just because of the number of disasters that are happening. I was just in Colombia. There was an earthquake in Ecuador. Nepal is a very risk-prone country. So it's not convincing my colleagues who live outside the U.S. It's because it's becoming more and more of a day-to-day thing. And I think in the U.S., that's we're going to be facing that challenge as well, both personally and professionally, just, just living in the U.S. So WWF recognizes that the world is changing. Climate change is helping to make that change happen at a significant scale and scope. And so, yeah, we have to modernize and update how we do conservation and natural resource management. Some of our traditional conservation, just as important, has to go ahead. But we also have to think creatively about the future because it's not what it used to be, to quote Yogi Berra. (laughs) Okay, so where to next? Well, I think the next trip I have scheduled, you never know, with emergencies, they can happen at a moment's notice, obviously. My next scheduled trip is to work with United Nations colleagues in Geneva. We're working together to modernize and update a rapid environmental assessment that can take place after disaster. So I also try to bring my work to a a policy perspective and, and help 
what we do on the ground inform that policy approach. So that's where I'm off to next, unless something exciting happens between now and the end of August. Okay, thank you so much. And any final thoughts before we sign off? Final thoughts are, I, I hope if there's students out there listening to this podcast, if there are people thinking that there's no connection between the environment and disaster, but you're interested, please reach out to us. We work with interns on a regular basis. We're really committed to training the next generation of practitioners. And I hope that we can kind of change hearts and minds around the old school conservation and where the new school of conservation is going. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Doug. Hi, everybody. I am back, and I am with... David Gwanga from Nature Pies Foundation, based here in Uganda. Okay, so we were put in touch because you created some really cool name tags here, and we're, it's about the art that's associated with what the CBA 11 is about, right? Yes, please. Because uh, these uh, are biodegradable name tags, uh, name card orders. We came about with this idea because we realized that many conferences which are promoting uh, conservation, environmental management, or adaptation like this one, end up using plastic bags, which again pollute, and it's contradicting the very message they are passing out. So uh, that's why we came up with this idea. And uh, these are made from uh, back cloth. This is a biodegradable, uh, biodegradable material that is got from the back of a tree called Ficus natalensis which has, uh, again, a very long history because, again, this product is uh, connected to community-based adaptation, whereby we get uh, uh, farmers to grow ficus natalis on their farms, but these trees uh, help to, to improve the resilience of the farms. They are good for agroforestry. They add nutrients to the soils. They are good for fodder. And they provide extra income, which all combined contribute to the resilience and adaptation capacity of the farming households. Again, after getting this, the, the bark of the tree, uh, women and uh, young youth groups make crafts out, out of this, which contributes also to their livelihood. So that's how we are, this uh, name card order uh, came about. So is there any significance to the shells that are on it? Is there, where'd you get those? Yeah, now, uh, the, 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 the components, uh, if I can talk about them yeah. a bit. This is, uh, the main component is a, a name card order. But, uh, as you can see, the organizers, uh, innovated that the program was put inside here. But we designed it in such a way that, um, the delegate can put uh, their uh, business cards, for example, when they get from people, they can just put their business cards here because it's like a bag. Then uh, this string is made out of recycled paper, and uh, even the string inside is biodegradable. So everything about it is biodegradable. Yeah, and I'm going to have a picture of it on my website so people can take a look, but it's really amazing thing. And I was actually carrying my phone in it. It's big enough. If people can visualize, it's this tan. It's kind of this... I, it's hard to describe the bark, but it, it's just a beautiful work. And I did fit, I, I'm hoping the string's strong enough to hold up my phone, but it is. <laughs> and this is kind of actually really interesting. This is the first name tag that factored in adaptation to climate change into its construction. So I really appreciate that. Sure. Thank you very much. Yeah, last right to the site, 
this is something that um, yeah it's it fits in the, within the uh, the context that we are talking about so I go to a lot of conferences in the US and you get the plastic container with your name tag on it and so anything you could say to conference organizers about putting a little bit more thought into their name tags yeah sure uh, we are encouraging uh, all conference organizers that are sensitive to the environment after using a uh, plastic uh, card or whatever name card orders or uh, tags just keep it in mind that they will end up somewhere in the environment and polluting somewhere so that is uh, contradictory to what we are we are we are, we are trying to, to 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 the message we are trying to put, to, to put forward we are encouraging all organizers uh, uh, we shall put our contacts you can contact us we can well, we can as well uh, uh, provide the technology to other groups so that they can produce the same so that uh, we we can make this uh, humble contribution uh, in in protecting our environment so i can stay kind of in touch with you and include some contact information of people who are listening to my podcast if they are interested and in maybe doing some of these things on their own i can get that information from you sure you can you can you can get that information you can give some guide, guide guidelines on how they can make it so that uh, yeah we can promote this well what about if people even want to just have you guys construct their own do you guys sort of ship off name tags as sort of a, and i'm not sure if that fits into the adaptation principle with the carbon footprint but do you produce these for other conferences outside of uganda yeah sure we we have done this before because uh, so far we have uh, sent to uh, countries like new zealand australia uk usa we 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 we, we are already doing it. And yeah, you are talking about the carbon footprint, but I think the overall gain that we get from this is able to neutralize whatever carbon footprint can be involved in. Well, thank you so much. And I, it's, I'm sure it's kind of hard for people to visualize, but it is a beautiful piece and I've been, I'm going to wear it in other places, but thanks for everything that you do. Okay. Thank you very much. Hi, we are back at the CBA conference, and I am with... Rebecca Carter with World Resources Institute. So what do you do with WRI? I am the Deputy Director of the Climate Resilience Practice. So why are you here at CBA? Well, I think adaptation is inherently community-based. It is context-specific, and this is the kind of conference that really gets a, gives us the chance to get down to the local level and see exactly how people are adapting to climate change and hear the stories from across Africa and across the world about how adaptation action is taking place. I know what WRI is, but if you could kind of briefly explain what you guys do. Yeah, I think we call ourselves both a think and do tank. We work in six areas of environmental issues, and they are climate, cities, energy, food, forests, and water. And we have a home base in Washington, D.C., but then offices in Mexico City, Brazil, India, uh, I know them all, <laughs> Turkey, a new office in Addis Ababa, oh, in Indonesia. What will you take back from this? I mean, you explain what CBA is all about, but is this WRI the fun projects, or are they providing resources and tools? Yeah, we're not so much a funder as we are a partner. We have, I think, pretty awesome capabilities for research and analysis, and that's really what we bring to the game. So if we often partner with organizations to sort of fill out their 
action on the ground with maybe more research, more analysis to kind of help see the bigger picture and see variations between countries, similarities between countries, and just to, to help the learning along. Okay, so what stood out for you? Is there any presentations, any people that you've met, any countries that you've seen some exciting work out of? What Any great side conversations here? Actually, I might talk for a minute about the field trip that I went on, huh? if that's all right. So before coming to WRI about a year ago, I was with USAID. I was an Environment Foreign Service Officer, and I was actually posted in Uganda from 2012 to 2014. And while I was here, I helped to design and supervise the startup of a project called Education and Research to Improve Climate Change Action, Climate Change Adaptation, or ERICA. And when I left Uganda in 2014, the project sites hadn't really been chosen. The project was just getting rolling. So I was able to go on a field trip to see those project sites three years later, and it was amazing to see all the good work on the ground. Um, we traveled to Masaka and saw, I would say, half a dozen farmers of different sorts, including women farmers, who are teaching each other these adaptation techniques. And, you know, they they had great moving stories about how much their lives have improved by just improving their agriculture because it is so central to livelihoods here. So is this Erica program unique to Uganda, or is this something being applied elsewhere? Uh, USAID does climate change adaptation work all across the world. Um, I think each program is a little bit unique because they are certainly tailored to the local context. But some of the, you know, the basic ideas are the same, like a focus on sustainability, making sure that the project will last after the funding ends, and also really involving local people and giving them a lot of input into the project to determine what it is they need, what they would like to see, and what's going to be most helpful to them. From multiple conversations, I'm getting the impression that USAID funding is really important and it's doing good things. And the fact that you're no longer there, maybe you can say, be a bit more honest in your assessment of the value of that funding in case it gets cut by chance. WRI has been supporting USAID and other development partners around the world, sort of taking the platform a little bit when they can't to articulate the value of development aid. So we do feel that very strongly. I myself have written a blog about the value of adaptation, USAID adaptation projects in different countries that I've worked in. Is that a blog on WRI? It is, yeah. Just look for Rebecca Carter. Check that out. Okay, I'll try to remember and include that in the show notes. Any final thoughts? I think that's about it. But thank you very much for the opportunity to chat. We traveled all this way to meet each other, and what, we're really close where we live? That's true. That's true. I'm uh, in the middle of D.C. down near Union Station near WRI's offices. Living the city life. I'm up in uh, Maryland. But uh, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Adapters, we are back, and I am with Heather McRae. I'm the director of the Climate Justice Resilience Fund. So what do you do there? We are a brand-new grant-making initiative that supports women and youth and indigenous peoples with grant-making to um, build resilience and adapt to climate change. So here you are at CBA 11. This is an international an event. So is that so the focus, or do you do things in North America? Our focus is primarily international, but we're doing grant making in three places. Um, the Bay of Bengal in uh, South Asia, here in Kenya and Tanzania in Eastern Africa, and then in the Arctic, including um, Alaska and Canada. So you have climate justice in the title. So the idea of environmental justice, how does that sort of work out in the grant making process? What sort of projects are you focusing on? 
Well, we're still, we're still new. So we're, we're working on figuring this out, but we do have four pillars of work that are really aimed at empowering communities and vulnerable people. And that would be things like building advocacy capacity and supporting institution building and movement building, essentially supporting leadership development. Access to information is really important and, um, local adaptation initiatives. These are the kinds of things we support. And we do that really in four areas where climate change impacts are really causing social justice challenges. And so that is um, water access, food security, uh, livelihood sustainability, and then migration and relocation. So you're here at CBA 11. Are you funding any of the organizations here or any of the people here? Yeah, we supported the the conference, actually, and the Parallel Youth Conference that's being led by uh, Makarari University across town. So we've youth are really one of our, our areas of interest and, and the constituencies we seek to support. So we've helped make sure that they're active participants in this conference and that there's linkages between the conference Makarari's ha- holding and the CBA 11. So you, you really do kind of have a unique niche. And when I think of a, a foundation and the process of going through that, there's a traditional model for that. But there's probably folks that don't even know how to maybe approach you. Do you have a grant-making window or do you kind of seek out people? It's a mix. I've been seeking out people, but we also do have a grant-making window. And you can find the timeline and the, the process on our website. It's www.cjrfund.org. Okay, so what are some of the outputs of this meeting do you hope to take back to what you're doing? Yeah, I'm looking for ideas about how to better engage youth in adaptation and in particular reaching vulnerable youth. We, you know, we were really interested in the future, right? And particularly in a very young continent like Africa, young people have their whole lives ahead of them during which the climate's going to change quite a lot. Involving them early in adaptation, ensuring that their livelihoods are climate resilient, and helping them bring that young entrepreneurial spirit to this question of how communities adapt is what I'm really interested in. I've had some great conversations about it. I led a session about it yesterday, and um, today the the youth conference starts, so I'll be leading a session there and talking to lots of young folks. I'm obviously very interested in communicating adaptation, even with this podcast. And I think I'm filling a niche, and I'm just curious, is that an emphasis for the foundation? Because you're dealing with youth, you're dealing with people, and adaptation is still such an abstract topic. Are there successful models of communicating this topic as you're trying to engage with these audiences? Yeah, um, we're working on this, and I think you can see at this conference there's some some really innovative communications going on, and there's some pretty old-school kind of PowerPoint-heavy approaches to communications. And there's there's still a lot of scope for improving this. But I had two very articulate young people yesterday on a panel who, who really had fantastic things to say on behalf of their generation and made me feel like there is great communications coming out of today's young people. In terms of models, I, I can't say, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. This is a big world. There's a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures. But this issue of communities and having examples and grounded approaches that are practical, that talk about things like water and agriculture and get away from some of the abstractions that we run into. I think that's that's a key in many cases. There's also a lot of great stories out there and getting people to tell their stories and digging into those stories. That's one of the opportunities here at this conference and one of the things that we hope to pursue in our grant making. 
Okay, so you, you did mention some of the countries that you worked in, but do you work at all in North America? Yes, the Arctic is one of our focal regions, and we've made one grant already in Alaska. We also will be exploring Canada and Greenland, so I think that's closest to your area of interest. Well, it's all my interest, but no, I do emphasize North America, but I'm just curious, if you come to these meetings, it must be difficult as a grant-making authority that the, the conversations that I've had, like some of the issues of climate change deal with life and death, and that doesn't come up as much in the U.S. Maybe like extreme storm events or those things, but drought can impact millions of people here. How, as an organization, it's like, oh, we want to divert our resources to these countries in most need, but then you're working with some of these others, and so your strategic planning process must be a fun activity. Well, part of part of the point we want to make and what we want to weave through our grant making is that climate justice is relevant all over the world. There are people in North America for whom this is a life or death issue. There are communities on the coast of Alaska for which for whom climate change really is an existential threat and they need to move. They're homes are falling into the ocean as the the coast erodes and the ice melts and the the communities there want to keep their community together to be coherent as a culture as a alaska native culture but they don't have a lot of power to do that and they're actually struggling to navigate the system as a as a group that has been historically marginalized in north america awesome well i really appreciate what you're doing thanks for coming on thank you Hey everybody, I am back and I am with... I'm Arno Skeide from GRZ, German International Corporation. Okay, so what do you guys do? Uh, well, GRZ is a, is a government-owned company that is concerned about development in um, partner countries. We're working worldwide in more than 130 countries on development issues. But you're a private firm, you're not an NGO or anything. Uh, no, we're government-owned, we're government-owned, yeah, we're not a private uh, company and we're not an NGO either. Okay, so maybe explain that a little bit more. So are you like a government agency or just like a consultancy to the government? Uh, we're a government agency, right. What are you doing here at CBA? Uh, at the CBA, it's not only on CBA, it's also on EBA, Ecosystem-Based Adaptation, and uh, GRZ implements on behalf of the Ministry for, for Development Economic Cooperation uh, projects on EBA and also on CBA in various partner countries. Uh, overall, we are working in 130 countries with various projects. At the EBA, uh, we have more than 30 projects worldwide. Okay, so why has the German government taken an interest in EBA? Why is it a model that you find useful? Because uh, the government is really concerned about the climate change and uh, in particular about adaptation and uh, we want to help people to be able to adapt to the adverse effects of climate change by using their natural resources. Okay, so I had an interesting conversation with someone from Irish Aid, and she was sort of saying that they're working here in Africa for two reasons. One, they feel like there's a moral component of it. They need, they feel like the obligation to help, but then they had a more, their own self-interest, and climate change is going to affect migration from the countries, and so does that factor in with German interests, with national security and such? Yeah, yes, of course uh, it does, because if people would lose their economic basis uh, just, just by, by, by floods or, uh, or heavy rains and, and things, uh, that would heavily affect their livelihoods. So yes, it is also it's an economic issue, and so we want to help them to be able to sustain themselves um, over, over, the long period, over the long period of time and, and work sustainably. 
are, do you have any American partners? Is it the American government? Are there American NGOs that you're working with? Well, uh, we are working on the project base, so I can speak only uh, f- um, from a, from the perspective of the global uh, EBA uh, uh, project. And yes, we do have partners in, in the United States, uh, being WRI, uh, World Resource Institute, uh, CI Conservation International, and also WWF. Let's say in a I was able to visit one of your project sites. What one do you hold up as a model? Why is it a model? What are they doing? Or is that too, putting you too much on the spot because you're working in so many countries? Uh, we are working so, uh, in very many countries. And uh, uh, as I said, we are working through bilateral projects. We as a project, we are a global project. We are um, a mainstream project. So we would um, mainstream the issue of EBA, meaning that we are concerned about knowledge management. So the project we are working with, the bilateral projects, we are working with projects in Brazil, in Vietnam, in the Philippines, and South Africa, Mexico, and, and Peru, and a few more. In the U.S., there's been some issues of potentially cutting budgets to international aid. And coming to this conference, you could see the the value of that aid. And is this a concern of your agency, um, the German government? Is it, is it kind of manifesting itself, or are you just not working with the U.S. government much on these issues? Uh, well, we are lucky in, in Germany that they're not, not cutting down on, on these budgets because it's very, very important, I think, also for worldwide economic, economic development. And I would be very, very concerned if um, budget issues or budget would be cut down. Uh, well, was what on development it, it would really uh, do big harm. So, has there been anything that stood out at this conference for you? Any presentations? Any conversations? It, it's amazing to, to see uh, how people gather from all, from all over, over the world, from all walks of life and, and, and society, and contributing uh, towards the issue of CBA and, and, and also EBA. And uh, there's so much knowledge around, and uh, knowledge management, that's really one of the main issues. And it became very, very clear that we have to be concerned not to reinvent all those those wheels again. So we should really build uh, on each other's experience, and uh, there's a whole wealth of doing that. So we can really tap on on many experiences that are already there on on the ground, and so be more efficient and make communication and and, uh, development more efficient in the the sense of we can reach out wider and uh, be more focused and also faster. Okay, so any final thoughts? Well, final thought, really, and that uh, is something what came clearly out from this conference. We need to work together, yeah, we, uh, internationally and also uh, individually. We can't do it by ourselves, so we need to be together with American institutions uh, as well as other European institutions. We can build on each other's experience, and that's what we should do. So that coordination of efforts, that's really key uh, for the... Uh, for, shit, that's... <laughs> I want to keep that in. Okay, that's brilliant. I love that. Uh, You can just say, that's a wrap. (laughs) That's a wrap. All right, thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. Welcome back, Adapters. I am with... Manuel Mutimukuyu, the Director of Human Development at Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique. So is this your first CBA? Yes, it is. So what do you think so far? I mean, it's interesting to see people from all, all uh, from almost all over the world uh, exchanging ideas on uh, how they work on climate adaptation in their own countries and how we can, uh, you know, copy and adapt some of uh, the practices into our own context. So it's interesting. I don't know much about Mozambique, a little bit, but maybe just really quickly, could you describe my, my listeners, what is Mozambique? Is it a <laughs> wonderful country, I'm sure? 
Of course, it is a very wonderful country. Uh, it's located in southern Africa. It neighbors South Africa uh, to the southeast. And uh, just on the north, we have Tanzania. And to the west, we have Zimbabwe. I guess this gives you a good indication geographically where it is located. Uh, it is a former uh, Portuguese colony. It's probably sad to define it that way, but I think it's relevant because uh, the official language now is Portuguese in a country where there are um, uh, 25 to 26 uh, uh, local languages, then Portuguese is kind of, uh, you know, the element that binds together all the different um, cultures and tribes in the country. It has a very long coastline, um, about 2,500 um, kilometers, and because of that, uh, tourism is one of uh, the main uh, sectors, especially uh, kind of ocean and beach-based tourism but also tourism in protected areas like uh, the case of Gorongosa National Park. Gorongosa National Park, uh, I think some of the American audience will probably be somewhat familiar with it because um, it is going through a major restoration project, actually um, financially backed uh, by an American philanthropist, uh, Mr. Greg Carr. Gorongosa National Park was uh, one of the flagship uh, parks in Africa, uh, in the same league as Kruger National Park, uh, Masai Mara, Gonarezu uh, National Park. But and then uh, Mozambique went through a protracted civil war uh, from 1977 up to 1992. And in that civil war, actually the epicenter of the war was um, around the national park and elephant um, was hunted down for ivory actually to finance the war but uh, many other animals like antelopes were just uh, hunted and killed for uh, for consumption and then after the war we went through a period in which there was a lack of management to very limited management uh, in the park because I mean let us face it it's extremely expensive to manage uh, a national park uh, there are not many in the world that actually are financially sustainable. So then uh, parks depend on either governments or donors to, to support it. And in the case of Gorongosa, there was not that much interest because there was very little uh, left. But one thing that people never realized is that the small stuff uh, in terms of what the biodiversity is uh, still remain there. Uh, so through this um, huge investment that Mr. Greg Carr, with the support of uh, the American International Agency for Development, USAID, and other uh, donors, uh, Gorongosa now is back it, uh, on its feet, and um, I think people are now recognizing that actually uh, not much was lost. I mean, of course, we did lose uh, the big um, mammals, but they are being reintroduced gradually. But basically, uh, Gorongosa, in uh, the opinion of one of the most famous biologists um, in the world, um, Edward Wilson, is arguably the most biodiverse uh, park in the world. So uh, me being here today and in this week, I'm not only sharing our success in terms of uh, bringing back conservation in the park, but I'm also sharing another element which I think sets Gorongosa apart when you compare Gorongosa to other national parks in Africa and probably in the world, is that Gorongosa has set a human development uh, department in the park that tries to promote rural development around the park. And we spend as much 
in human development as we do in conservation. So we have large programs um, in health supporting over uh, 100,000 people and large investments uh, in uh, agriculture supporting about 4,000 uh, households, large investments uh, in education supporting uh, young girls to remain in school and also to go uh, to school supporting as well and the education system to integrate ecological and environmental topics uh, into the curriculum uh, supporting kids to actually understand that the environment supports uh, their life and they have to take care of the environment because, I mean, it's hard to change uh, people's um, behavior or perceptions about something. And then when we start with kids, we kind of build a generation that um, interacts with, envi- with the environment in a different manner. And other than that, we also invest heavily in science education, supporting uh, through internships, but also through higher education, uh, young uh, men and women from around the park to study in some of the best universities uh, of the world and uh, some of them when they come back they work with us others work with other institutions but then Gorongosa kind of feeds uh, the whole uh, conservation system uh, in the country. That's an amazing story and it's probably a unique situation that most parks don't have to go through what you just described and it sounds like it's rebounding quite nicely and so but you're here at this community-based adaptation conference and you're you're dealing with what most parks have to deal with you know there's issues of restoration but how does adaptation how does climate change come into what you're doing now Gorongosa National Park like many African national parks A is not fenced uh, B it is surrounded by communities and then the climate change challenges faced by the communities living around the national park directly affect the park. For example, uh, we have gone through three seasons of extreme uh, drought, and because of that, you have encroachment, uh, because people start trying to open new farming uh, land uh, in the park because of um, the perception that uh, the land is more fertile, which actually can be because uh, we have more trees there, rivers, and everything is protected. Then you have encroachment just because of that extreme weather event. Uh, people are going hungry, they will hunt in the park. Again, you have poaching just because of uh, that extreme weather event. So it's uh, in the park's interest actually to um, find ways to support people to have meaningful sources of livelihood uh, where they are. So what's your sense, as you describe this process of trying to engage with the community around the park and since the, the war and the impacts of that, would you say you're in a better position now to deal with the impacts of climate change based on this outreach that you've done with the communities? I mean, it's a, it's a learning process. Uh, we have, for example, uh, 16 different major communities around the park and some of the strategies that might work, for example, in the southeast uh, part of the park uh, will not necessarily work uh, up north because first the geography is very different and the people tend to be different too. Uh, this is the reason why a conference like this, for example, helps us to see uh, what is out there and how we can probably uh, shop around and see if we adapt some of these models. For example, uh, in the southeast, because of um, 
a big river that we have, which is not only a river that uh, crosses, that cut across Mozambique, it also involves some other African countries, which is the Pungwe River. We have major instances of human uh, wildlife conflict, um, elephants crossing from the park and uh, crop raiding uh, in the community's farms. That challenge we don't have in the north. So then uh, we actually have to have different uh, ways of working with uh, the people in the southeast. Uh, if we help them, and we do, with uh, their farms, but and then an elephant coming from the park goes and eats, it doesn't bode well you know, for the relationship between the park and the community. So it has to be uh, even more than that. You, know? you were talking about some of the science outreach that you're doing with the community. Do you... F- talk about climate change directly with them or is that just something that you're dealing with is is another responsibility i think you know defining climate change uh, can probably be somewhat complex uh, for some of the communities but and then when you start discussing the effects that um, they um, actually uh, having to deal with and then it kind of brings everything home so that is probably the right approach and we have for example problems with uh, deforestation and uh, the land becomes you know less and less productive for them so they understand that they are getting less and less bags of uh, corn uh, in the same area that they used to get before and because uh, they have less rain, they have less um, moisture in the soil, they have less organic matter in the soil. I mean, these are the things that they will understand. Climate change becomes very scientific. Depending on the audience that we have, uh, we can bring uh, these concepts or not bring at all. But because, as I said, we do work at different levels, we are working with um, local kids who are going through graduate studies, for example. I mean with those kids, uh, it's, a, it's a different story than uh, we can talk all the nitty-gritties of, uh, of these cons- uh, complex concepts. Okay, pretty much the last question for you is that you're at the CBA 11 conference, and do you have expectations? What sort of what's the things you want to take back to your park after attending this conference? Yeah, I really would like to see um, examples that uh, can be replicated elsewhere because most of the times in these community-based adaptation models, you have things that are unique to certain places and it's very hard to replicate or even, sorry, to scale it up, then it's probably interesting for a particular concept, a context, but not necessarily interesting to the overall humanity. So I would like to see easy and adaptable concepts that can be replicated and scaled. Because, I mean, we are not dealing with communities of 5,000 people around Gurungoza National Park we have under 200,000 people and um, all with the different um, wants and needs. Uh, uh, I really would like the National Park to be able to do even more than what we're doing already, which uh, by our own account and by many people's account, uh, it is already unbelievable. If I am able to do a podcast on location at your park, I hope I can look you up and you can take me around and we can explore these things in person. I'll be more than happy to uh, to host you uh, in Gorongosa National Park. Uh, as I mentioned before, I think Gorongosa National Park is not very strange to the American audience. Uh, major American uh, 
news powerhouses, uh, you know, like the New York Times, uh, the New York uh, National Geographic, they've uh, made uh, good coverages about uh, Gorongosa National Park. So I would actually invite you and your listeners uh, to dig a little bit more on what Gorongosa National Park is, and then we can do probably around two of this conversation. <laughs> I love that idea. I'm going to include some of that information on my show notes and such. But thank you so much. I really respect what you're doing. I appreciate that you're out there and you're struggling with some really complex issues that we don't have to worry about in the United States. And so thanks again. But then any final thoughts? I think everyone has to deal probably with the issues that we have to deal because uh, from what uh, I have been reading, um, the challenges that national parks have are pretty much the same, even if, unlike in the U.S., you don't have communities trying to encroach in the national park, but I mean, you still have people fighting for the same resources, and then the question becomes, uh, who are we protecting those resources for? And if you talk to your neighbors in a national park, they will think that you are protecting it for people who are coming from elsewhere. But I mean, at the end of the day, the ecosystem services uh, that the immediate people receive from the park or from any other protected areas are massive. But and then national parks are kind of failing in explaining to people that they are gaining uh, ecosystem services and in Africa it becomes even more difficult just to tell people that actually your water is cleaner because of this national park actually you can grow more food because of this national park you know pollinization services I mean all these kind of things uh, it will be very hard for people to understand but I think national parks have to get better in explaining to people ecosystem services otherwise the pressure for people to increase their farming lands to increase their grazing lands uh, will increase and I've seen the same things happening in the U.S. as well. I have some listeners from the National Park Service in the U.S., and if you're listening to this, that was an amazing message that you just shared on the value of national parks, so I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, I am here with... Uh, Romy Chevalier, um, working for the South African Institute of International Affairs. Okay, so why are you here at the CBA 11? So I, um, in my professional capacity, work as a researcher... Um, and I do work in South Africa on the governance of Africa's resources. And obviously climate change has a major impact on various resources in Africa. Um, but also the management and then use of resources can contribute to alleviating climate change and making communities more resilient. I'm here essentially um, gathering information, um, learning, and obviously meeting um, communities working in this space um, in order just, I mean, networking, um, networking and learning. So we actually had a chance to talk yesterday, and that's, the listeners miss out on some of those early conversations, but we were talking about sort of the, the broader playing field that's going on here and, and your role in that and what you're interested in and how CBA benefits or what you need to do to kind of help this process. Yeah, so um, I work for an international affairs organization, so I come at, uh, come at this climate change adaptation thing from a slightly different perspective. I initially worked started working in the climate change space in terms of climate diplomacy, so climate change politics, um, the contribution of various countries um, to meeting climate change goals, but also to alleviating climate change um, challenges. And um, I look at it from, obviously, a, a vulnerability perspective. So given that I'm from South Africa, we have a lot of people that depend on natural resources and therefore are affected by climate change. But South Africa, for example, is also a major emitter um, of carbon dioxide. So therefore, we play a, a much a huge role in terms of making sure that we 
reduce our carbon dioxide. And then I attend negotiations every year. And um, always the, the missing link at the negotiations is the community angle and the community voice. So as um, myself, as a, as a policy person, um, as we create and design these these policies we need to make sure that they um that they are aligned with what the communities are asking for and that they're aligned with the challenges of people's livelihoods and also so that they they represent urgency around climate change and cl- climate vulnerability and in southern africa we're dealing with some major issues related to drought and water scarcity um, and food related issues so and um, these things are immediate for people and it's very important that as policy um, advisors or policy or decision makers that we are making sure that the community voices are seen within this sort of national, regional, and continental um, frameworks that we're designing. Okay, so I know you have to be somewhat careful, but I'm curious. I'm here. I have no context of what all these different countries are doing on CBA, but is there a model country in Africa where people are like, all right, they're getting it. They're getting it out in uh, it's broad-scale application. They've got a nice financing model. I mean, is there a particular country you could use? I think each country has, has certain sectors. Well, not each country. There's a lot of countries that are, that are very behind in terms of what they're doing, but other countries where you can pick out examples where communities have um, created an adaptation project that's greatly enhancing their resilience or where a government, for example, is managing their resources in such a way that they're taking communities into account, but they're also doing doing so you know, in a sustainable way. So there's, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, maybe, okay, so if you could look at a country like Rwanda or even Uganda, um, there's certain areas within the agricultural sector uh, where Uganda is making a lot of headway, where at least the voices of communities are represented in their national adaptation frameworks. Um, South Africa is doing the same. We've got, for example, if you look at the role that biodiversity and ecosystems play within our um, official frameworks, they're very prominent and very central to the discussions. The same, the same with re- related to, to community voices. That being said, there's obviously uh, putting something into a policy and a framework is one thing. What we chan- what the challenge is at the moment at the global level is making sure that what's written in terms of policy and framework is actually implemented. And that's where we are in terms of the official climate change negotiations. We've got everything, the Paris Agreement, we have all our nationally determined action plans. We know what we need to do and now we need to do it. And attracting finance and making sure we have the capacity to do it and we have the technology to do it is a a difficult and different thing. And I think at the moment in terms of monitoring and evaluating and checking that countries are on board is where, you know, that's what we have to be concentrating on at the moment. So a lot of Americans really have no idea what the implications of pulling out of the Paris Agreement really means. And we were chatting a little bit about this, but could could you give a little bit more context of you're dealing with partnerships. You're dealing with a lot of countries, and the U.S. sometimes doesn't relate that way. And so what ultimately might that impact be, especially in the, in the field of adaptation? So um, it's a difficult question, but essentially for the last many years, the climate change community has been trying to negotiate a, a binding agreement where each country makes a, a nationally determined goal towards reducing their emissions and a- adapting to climate change. Uh, with the withdrawal of the United States from the Paris Agreement is a very, very disappointing thing for the climate um, audience because climate change is cumulative. It's a, it's a global commons issue. Um, what happens in the United States has will have climate change impact effect on a more vulnerable country. And when you add the negotiations and you see countries that are small island developing countries and sinking, or countries like northern Kenya that's, that's at the moment experiencing a famine where people are dying from food insecurity, you become very frustrated that not everybody's on board to meet these global commitments. What happens in the United States in terms of emissions has 
implications for other countries. Um, we all have one atmosphere. It's all cumulative. So it's very frustrating for, for, for countries to be on board and then see one of the, the global, uh, largest global emitters to pull out is a very frustrating thing. That being said, um, I don't think all is lost. What, where we need to concentrate our efforts now is looking at the role of, of individuals, looking at the role of non-state actors in meeting these commitments. Cities and within the United States themselves, you've seen various actors outside of the official government coming forward to say, well, irrelevant of the official government position, we will still contribute and, and make efforts to change. And I think, I just think it's a, it's a globally responsible thing to do in a time of major change is try and assist, uh, sort of in a forward looking way and, and movement in a forward looking way. It's a justice issue. I totally agree. And I appreciate that perspective. And I guess sort of last question, what, what would you say to my listeners? What, what's South Africa like? What kind of country is it? <laughs> South Africa, um, is, is a wonderful place to visit. So, um, it's an incredibly beautiful place with massive, uh, different, different places, different provinces, different biodiversity. Um, we're exceptionally blessed with, with a variety of, of natural, natural beauty. Politically, a little bit complicated at the moment. I think, um, there's a lot of issues related to, um, the current administration. The political landscape is a little uncertain. Pros and cons of, of all. But what is quite interesting is the, in terms of professionally, South Africa plays an interesting role on the continent. It's a, it's a big, uh, contributed to, to pollution, as I said, but also it, 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 it can play a major change role on the continent. And often in global fora, South Africa represents the African uh, group of negotiators in climate change, within the sustainable development goals, within meeting many other targets. So South Africa is, is an interesting place to watch, um, uh, but also a beautiful place to visit. So I encourage you to all to come, come and look at our elephants and our rhinos before they well know. Well, don't say that. <laughs> come and visit. Come and visit us. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Thank you very much for the interview. Hey, everybody, I am back, and I am with Tom Durr uh, from Peace Corps Uganda. Where are you from originally? Uh, from Cleveland, Ohio, originally. Okay, so an American in Uganda with Peace Corps. Why are you here? So I've been a Peace Corps here in Uganda for about two years now, working in, as an agribusiness volunteer in the western part of the country. You're working on a project. I think we were introduced to talk about climate crab. What's that all about? Yeah, so with a partnership through WWF, we had this opportunity to start a project called Climate Crowd. It gives uh, Peace Corps volunteers and other people all over the world this opportunity to collect community-based knowledge on climate change, whether it's in Nepal, Uganda, America, Canada, wherever in the world. And it's a crowdsourcing network online where people can go and post. The impacts are seeing how people are responding to that and a way for people to share, whether the researchers sharing with the public, whether it's the public sharing with policymakers or whatever. It's a, a way to bridge the gap between people and communities and policymakers to kind of see what's going on throughout the world. Okay, so that sounds like some of that is sort of the outcome of what you're doing there. But you get up in the morning and you're working on climate crowd and you're in a pretty remote part of the area. What does that mean? Yeah, for sure. So my project specifically, I mean, as a Peace Corps volunteer, you you live in a, a rural community in most cases, away from most amenities. You're a part of your community. And as a member of that community, you're really, you, you know, you're a part of, you care about what happens there. You care about for example, what climate change is doing in that in that community. So uh, with the local community that I've, I've been working with, we've developed a project where we're doing some participatory appraisals and needs assessments to kind of figure out what it is that's hurting them most in response to climate change. And after doing 
several activities and creating a list of all sorts of challenges they face, whether they're health-related, agricultural, or uh, infrastructure-related. We've kind of narrowed it down and determined that water resources are really the biggest problem they're facing. Here in Uganda, and especially in my community, we're seeing heavier rainfall events, but not nearly as many. So that's leading to a lot of ground surface erosion, contaminating water sources. And consequently, this community has been seeing a lot of uh, cases of typhoid and other waterborne diseases. So through this program and Climate Crowd, through a grant I got through the WWF and our Peace Corps partnership, we were able to uh, get some funding and make some improved protected water sources that have you know, protect from the surf- surface water runoff, things like shallow water boreholes and protected spring wells. It, it also enhances agricultural irrigation. It cuts down on the time that a mother might have to go and fetch water. It, it cuts down on the time children have to go fetch water and take them away from school, that kind of thing. So it's been a great project, and I'm, I'm looking forward to continue working with the community to see the project grow. All right, it sounds like a really innovative program by WWF to work with groups like Peace Corps. And so it sounds like it's successful so far. Is there any interest from WWF for Peace Corps to expand it elsewhere in Uganda? Yeah, so WWF, I think they, they first approached Peace Corps Uganda, Peace Corps Tanzania uh, as kind of the, the opening partnership programs for this program. And it's been very successful in, in Uganda among Peace Corps volunteers uh, in total, there's there's something like 600, 700 reports that have been posted on this crowdsourcing website all over the world, and uh, 150 of those are can be found here in Uganda, written by Peace Corps volunteers, people from the School of Field Studies, researchers from the WWF and elsewhere. So it's shown a lot of promise in Uganda and in Tanzania, and I would like to see it stretch other Peace Corps countries uh, all over the world. So what I've heard quite a bit at this conference is international aid goes a long way in these international partnerships with groups like World Wildlife Fund, but you are the mechanism. You're a Peace Corps. You're Mm -hmm. part of the federal government, and there's talk of cutting international aid. And so I guess you were sort of a poster child of it's actually doing some good out there. Yeah, for sure. Peace Corps volunteers are... I mean, we're, we're foreigners in the country we work, but by the end of our service or even by the, the mid part of our service, our communities generally see us as part of that community. So we're the on the ground field agents that not only sharing what's going on in America or, or elsewhere in the world and sharing culture, but we're, we're also learning about the cultures that we experience, whether it's in, in Uganda, Macedonia, Nepal, some Pacific island, you know? So, we take that knowledge back and we share it, and it's, it's a real shame that some of the bu- budgeting is being cut for Peace Corps when it's been such a powerful pro- program for so long, starting in the 1960s, implemented by John F. Kennedy. And to see that in a time when Peace Corps is growing, to see that kind of come down can be really disheartening. And it's a program that has been going on for so long and has been so prosperous and good in so many different ways to take that away from all the different volunteers that have served in Peace Corps, whether they're young people, old people, people from all backgrounds. It it really needs to be promoted, not brought down. All right. Some great insight there. I appreciate that. Last question. You are from Cleveland, Ohio. Are the Browns going to be the worst team in the NFL this year? Uh, I cheer for the Browns 100% all the time. I think this is our year for sure. (laughs) Thanks a lot. No problem. Thank you. Hi, I'm back on the final day of the conference, and I am with... Salim Haq. I'm the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development 
at the Independent University Bangladesh, and I'm also a senior fellow at the International Institute for Environment and Development based in London, which is one of the organizers of this event. So how long have you been involved with this event? From the very beginning. I started it about 12 years ago, and we've been doing it now. This is the 11th conference. The first three were two years apart. After that, they've become one year apart, so it's more than 11 years. So one year, that keeps you busy, an annual event. It does indeed. It's quite an undertaking, but I have a very good team of people who help me. Tell me about that first year. What were you thinking when you wanted to start this event? Where, Where was the demand? What did you see the need for? Well, it came out of the view that the climate change was real. It's happening. It will happen even more in future, and it'll affect the most vulnerable people on the planet living in the poorest countries, and they don't know anything about it. So perhaps it's time for them to know something about it and try and prepare for it. And so we got together people who were not the poorest communities, but working with the poorest communities. It tended to be uh, development NGOs like Oxfam and CARE and Practical Action and all the others who have been with us over these years. And so we got together mainly the NGO sector, development actors, for whom climate change was also new. It was a new subject. They wanted to learn about it. They wanted to know what, what they might be able to do about it. And from that, this community of practice on community-based adaptation arose. Over the last decade or more, every single one of these international development agencies has developed a climate change program, and they are working on it in, I would say, many tens of thousands of households all over mainly Africa and Asia, some in Latin America as well. So the issue of community-based adaptation, the understanding of it has grown, the application of it has grown. What we now need to do is think about expanding it not to the hundreds of thousands, but to the tens and maybe hundreds of millions. Adaptation is a relatively new field. It's an emerging field, and five years sometimes is a lifetime in it. So what sort of big trends have you seen change in adaptation over 12 years? Well, there there have been several major trends. The first era or phase of adaptation was simply to understand, look around you and understand what the climate impacts are likely to be. And when you do that, you find that a lot of things that you're doing are actually making you more vulnerable rather than less vulnerable. And so the first mantra is stop digging a hole. Stop making yourself more vulnerable. Stop building on floodplains. Stop doing things that are going to make you more vulnerable in the future. And we went through a lot of that analysis, understanding, looking at vulnerability, looking at impacts, figuring out what we need to do. And then the second phase kicked in, which was now you think about future investments. And as you develop your programs, whether they're on infrastructure or human development programs, you think about, is this going to be resilient to future climate? Because future climate is not going to be the same as the past climate. So the past is no longer a predictor of the future. You have to do some modeling. You have to do some figuring out what the future climate is going to be. And you have to build in now some resilience into your investment, which means the investment now becomes somewhat more expensive, not hugely expensive, maybe 5% or 10% more to make it more resilient, but that's a smart thing to do because if you don't make that investment, then it's not going to be resilient, and then the next time there's a flood or a drought, it's going to fall apart. And so the second phase, which we are in now, is what we in the scientific domain call incremental adaptation. We figure out what we need to do to reduce the risk of impacts, and we make some investments to reduce those risks. We are now on the cusp of thinking about, but not necessarily doing, what we call the next phase, which is transformational adaptation. It's about not just managing the risk of impacts, but about how we can use the risks 
how we can use the investments in adaptation to come off out of it better off than we were before, not just managing the risk, but better off. And I'll give you an example of that. In the case of Bangladesh, where I come from, we, one of the biggest, Bangladesh is one of the most vulnerable countries to the impacts of climate change, all kinds of things from floods to droughts to sea level rise in particular. Sea level rise, low-lying coastal area is going to displace tens of millions of people over the next few decades. Now, the immediate adaptation, the incremental adaptation is helping them right now, growing crops that are more salt tolerant, giving them uh, access to fresh drinking water when the water gets saline, etc. This is happening now. But in future, over the next decade, these people will not be able to continue there. The time scale allows us to invest in helping the adults of today adapt today and investing in the kids of tomorrow to be educated and skilled so they don't have to be fishers and farmers like their parents. They can get jobs in towns and cities and actually be better off economically. And then they can take their parents when they want to with them. So this is what we call planned and facilitated migration. We make migration into a solution, not a problem. At the moment, it's a problem, forced migration. If we plan it well, that's a transformational adaptation. So adaptation can be quite different in the United States. Again, there's more resources. But what I've learned at this conference, too, is it's very interesting On with community-based adaptation. There's a greater ability to actually communicate with the, the ground level, with the public on what's going on in the U.S. That's not happening so well. So even though they might do things differently, I think... Americans who do adaptation could benefit to, from coming from this conference and actually learning those sort of engagement and practices. Has there been any thought, of including, I know you deal with American aid agencies, but what about just more people at the state and local level who might benefit from your approach? We'd love to have them come. Uh, we can't afford to bring them. They're going to have to pay for themselves. We have had the occasional people. There was a city a person, a retired person from Miami who came twice. He didn't, he didn't manage to come this year. Uh, but he really enjoyed it and saw the synergy. So one of the biggest aspects of adapting to climate change, which is different from mitigation, which is very much hardware-oriented, adaptation is human. It's not about hardware. It's not technology as much. It's about human social organization. And sometimes, paradoxically, poor communities have better social uh, setup uh, and social bonds to help each other than rich ones do. Rich countries, often you don't know your neighbor, you don't care about your neighbor. But this is about people helping each other. The first line of adapting to the impacts of climate change is getting your act together as a society, as a community. And that's essentially what community-based adaptation is. And many, many developed countries, developed in the economic sense, can learn a lot from the poorer countries on how to organize people. People are people wherever they are. They may be more rich and poorer, but they're still people. So I would encourage, if you have a representative, we have a national adaptation forum that occurs every two years, going there and presenting and even making that pitch that you guys could potentially benefit from our approach. I think that would be greatly appreciated there. I, I'm aware of the, the North America Forum, and I've been invited several times to go there. I just haven't been able to make it. I promise to make it next time. Uh, uh, the organizers have been uh, inviting me regularly, and I promise I'll go next time. So, yes, I will do that. Excellent. And uh, I guess the final thought is what, what's in store for CBA 12? Well, we're taking this opportunity of having done 11 years to do some reflection on the series and whether we should continue or not. In my concluding speech, I'll give a little uh, sort of version of where we are on that. Uh, I think the, 
preponderance of opinion is we should continue, but we may need to think about making it a bit more strategic. At the moment, we just do, you know, one year from the next and it's an annual gathering, but maybe think of the next three or four years and something that we might want to do over that time span rather than simply have an annual gathering. Uh, which is useful in itself, but whether we can use the series more strategically. We'd love to get more participation from developed countries. We'll reach out to them and see whether we can do that. Might even do one in a developed country if uh, someone's interested. So, yes, we have a number of ideas. Uh, watch this space. We will uh, let you know what's happening next. Thank you so much, and congratulations. Thank you. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap to this episode. I hope you learned what adaptation means in the developing world. I know I did, but I feel like I just scratched the surface. I had many takeaways, one of the major ones being adaptation in many of these developing countries can be a life or death struggle. People are still figuring out adaptation. We're still figuring it out in the United States. At CBA 11, they are trying to figure it out for the developing world. They don't have all the answers, but the conference seeks to find solutions and create pathways to true adaptation. I quickly discovered most of these groups are severely under-resourced. They have to prove over and over again what they are doing is worth it. The reality is, true effective adaptation planning won't take years, it will take decades. CBA 11 has the advantage of having been doing something for over a decade that many groups in the United States have only been doing for a few years. We can learn from them. Again, I want to acknowledge the generous private sponsor who enabled me to travel and record this podcast. If your organization is interested in highlighting your adaptation work with a podcast, please contact me at americadaps at gmail.com. Podcasts resonate deeply with listeners. It's an innovative, substantive, and conversational way to share your adaptation story. If you want to learn more about Uganda, I have some links in my show notes. The people were delightful, the music lively and inspiring, and it's a country renowned for its wildlife. Maybe next time I'll get to see the mountain gorillas. Okay, until next time, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or join the page or the community group on Facebook. Just search for America Daps. Also, I'd love hearing from listeners. Let me know what you thought of this episode. I can be emailed at americadaps at gmail.com. And stick around and enjoy this wonderful Ugandan song. And until next time, this is America Daps, the climate change podcast.
this is America Adapts, the climate change podcast.